We thank you for your word, God, and we thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. As we meditate on this historical event, this redemptive event that was for our salvation, help us to treasure the gospel in our hearts and to go forth from here ready and willing to live out that gospel that has redeemed us, that has saved us. We ask for this by the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Imagine how life-changing the resurrection of Jesus was for the Apostle Paul. I'm, I'm sorry, for the Apostle Peter. For the Apostle Peter in particular. Now to do this, you first need to appreciate the profound effect of Christ's death on Peter. Never has there been anyone in the history of the world, who felt more hopeless than Peter did on Good Friday. When Messiah Jesus died, so did the Apostle Peter's hope. He put all of his hope in this one man, all of his eggs in one basket, as they say, in in Jesus. But now, Jesus is dead. The cross decimated Peter's hope. From Friday to Sunday, surely Peter cried as many tears of confusion as he did tears of regret. When it was crunch time, Peter had shamefully sold out three times. Then again though, why did it matter? since the one who was supposed to be Israel's king had surrendered to a shameful crucifixion at the hands of those that he was supposed to conquer and rule over. Nothing made sense. Imagine the dismay and the bitter sorrow that consumed Peter from Friday afternoon to Sunday morning. Now, imagine again how momentous, how life-changing, how transformative the resurrection of Jesus was for the Apostle Peter. Peter's hopelessness, great though it was, profound though it was, didn't persist because Jesus didn't stay dead. And that's the only reason. On Easter morning... Peter learned of the empty tomb from those women who had witnessed it first. And from the angels. Then he saw his living Lord eventually with his own eyes. And hope was reborn in Peter's heart. And eventually Peter wrote a letter that celebrates and praises God for this living hope. 1 Peter is an epistle of hope. It could only have been written by someone who, having lost all hope, had discovered an eternal hope, an incorruptible hope 
in the resurrection of Jesus. Peter's hope doesn't contain the fragility of what we call a fond hope. He's not hoping against hope. No, Peter writes of a sure hope. A hope, as Edmund Clowney put it, that holds the future in the present because it is anchored in the past. Peter hopes for God's ultimate salvation, God's delivering salvation, His final deliverance of His children and of all creation from the curse of sin and death. Peter's hope is absolutely certain. When Peter uses the word hope, he doesn't use it as we often use it. I hope to be there tomorrow. I hope this or that is going to happen. No, Peter's hope is an absolute certainty because God has already accomplished this great salvation in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the message here. And I love how Peter begins the main body of this epistle And you'll want to open your Bibles, if you haven't yet, to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to be looking at those verses that I read. Verses 3, 4, and 5 from 1 Peter 1. And I love how he, after his his salutation, his introduction, I love how he begins the main body in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So before Peter went anywhere else, before he wrote anything else... He blesses God. He doesn't launch into the difficult circumstances of these elect exiles that he's writing to. He'll do that later. He doesn't write to them straight away about how to live life in an evil age. He'll get to that later as well. Peter centers his letter on God. His first priority is to call these elect exiles to make a decided and determined prayer of praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has been raised from the dead. And when you bless and praise God in Christ, you enter into His presence. You transcend the circumstances and the evil of this age. Peter is God-centered. And only God-centered people who pray God-centered prayers, who give God praise at all times from beginning to end and all the way through the middle, only they experience the fullness of joy and the eternal pleasures that exist in the presence of God at His right hand. Peter continues in verse 3, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So in the resurrection of Jesus, God has given life not only to Jesus, not only to his son, but also to us, to you. He's given us a new birth. God the Father has fathered us. God the Father has fathered You, He has made you His children by means of the resurrection of His Son. He's made you a son by means of the resurrection of His eternal Son. In Christ's triumph over death, God makes all things new, starting 
with you, with us. When Jesus returns, we know that the whole universe will receive its new birth, right? That's coming. Romans 8 talks about that, how the, how the whole universe, the whole cosmos is groaning, waiting for that day of redemption. And it's going to happen when we're raised from the dead, Paul says in Romans 8. Our bodies will receive a new birth. We long for that, don't we? we? We groan along with the rest of creation because our bodies are breaking down and we long to have resurrection bodies. God will restore all things. In fact, Peter himself, the author of this epistle, preached about that event back in Acts toward the beginning of his ministry in Acts chapter 3. Preaching in the temple, Peter proclaims in Acts 3, 19 to 21, Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so that God may send Christ appointed for you. That's send Him from heaven the second time. Christ, that God may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. So Peter's anticipating this. He's looking forward to it. He's wanting even to hasten the day, as he says in Second Peter. The time of new birth for the entire cosmos, including your body, will come when God sends Christ back from heaven, back to earth. Until then, Peter says, heaven must keep the Christ. Believers who are united to Christ in his death and resurrection have already tasted of the glories of that great and glorious day. We've, we've tasted it. We, we, we haven't experienced the fullness of it, but we have a taste of it now. If you are in Christ, you're already a new creation. The future has come into the present. If you are in Christ, you're a part of that new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. The old Adam in you is dead. The new Adam, Christ, is alive in you. Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, in this body, in this flesh. You've been reborn of God from above. That's how Jesus puts it to Nicodemus in John 3, from above. The new birth of which Peter speaks is the radical heart change that God accomplishes in every single one of His people. When God brought you from death to life, when He delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred you, Paul says, into the kingdom of His beloved Son, when He saved you by grace through the faith that He gave you, you were born again. You are born again. Look at how Peter puts it down in verse 23, the same chapter, 1 Peter 1, 23. He says, you were born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible. So just as this new creation, this salvation that we're going to receive, this inheritance that is ours to come is incorruptible, so is the seed that's been planted 
in you, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. This new birth is by the word of God, by the power of God. It's the seed of God planted in you. And this new birth is is an internal event, a heart transformation, an invisible rebirth. It happens by God's Spirit working in you. And it must happen if you hope to spend eternity with God. Now, in Titus 3, Paul uses the language of rebirth in connection with baptism, water baptism. The washing of regeneration. And, and very clearly there, the, the washing there is referring to, to baptism. There is debate about that, but that's the most obvious way to take it. That's, for example, how our Reformed confessions understand it. 1 Peter 3 says something similar. Peter uses the language of salvation in connection with baptism. So Paul says baptism is a new birth. Peter says baptism saves. Now, we need to be able to affirm these truths without being confused by them. It's true that baptism is God's work. It's an act of God. It's a spiritual occasion, sacrament, ritual. Baptism is God's work of grace. God confers spiritual gifts in baptism. He gives gifts to His people in baptism. He really puts His name on His people in baptism. In some sense, God gives rebirth and salvation in baptism. Okay, that's, that's what the Scripture says. But we have to be careful, as we often do with, with Scripture and how we put these ideas together. Baptism is not when God gives the new birth that Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 1. So these terms are used in different ways in the Scripture. Nor does baptism guarantee the future salvation that Peter is talking about here in 1 Peter 1. Let me, let me, let's Think about this and see if we can begin to sort this out in our mind. Baptism is a public event, a visible and ceremonial, sacramental rebirth. Now, when I use words like public or visible, or we could say external, we're not saying it's not spiritual. We're not saying that it's not a work of God. We're just saying that it is the outward, visible, ceremonial rebirth that happens to God's people, that God gives to His people. And as such, baptism reflects and expresses the rebirth that God affects in a person's heart. Some Protestant confessions echo the language of Augustine by calling baptism an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. That's more Anglican and some Lutherans. We can say it too. It's true that baptism is grace. Baptism itself is God's grace. But it's also a sign and a seal of a deeper grace. It points beyond itself. So there'll there'll be people in heaven 
who did not receive the baptismal rebirth for whatever reason. Maybe they were on their way to church to be baptized after their conversion and they have a wreck and they die. There will be people in heaven who never received the washing of regeneration, as Paul calls baptism in Titus 3. They, they were saved. God gave them a new heart, even though for whatever reason they were not able to pass through the saving waters of baptism. However, there will be no one in heaven who missed out on the rebirth that Jesus tells Nicodemus about in John 3 and that Peter writes about here in 1 Peter 1. The thing to which the sign and seal of baptism points. The internal, incorruptible, invisible, heart-transforming new birth is required. In a way, the baptismal new birth, the baptismal regeneration, is not necessary. Absolutely, it's not absolutely necessary the way the new birth of the heart is absolutely in every way necessary. Now, this is not an argument for, you know, taking or leaving baptism, obviously. Everyone should be baptized. But it's not as absolute. The baptismal rebirth is not as absolute as the internal rebirth. So there will be people in hell who passed through the, wa- the saving waters of baptism while they were on earth, but there will be no one in heaven who was not given a new heart while he was on the earth. A new heart is absolutely necessary to be saved. And Peter bases his theology of the new birth on the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus. Christ rose And so did we. When Christ rose, we can even say, so did we. In giving new life to Christ, God gave life to all those who are united to Christ by faith. In Christ, your hope is as certain as Christ's resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus not only makes your salvation possible, it guarantees it for those who trust in Jesus. Down in verse 10, Peter says, Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. And in the following verses, he makes it clear that all these things that the prophets were talking about are happening now to you, to the new covenant people of God. The spiritual blessings that the old covenant believers looked forward to, have begun to happen at the first coming of Christ. And yet, there's more to come. We, too, look to the future. We look back, but we also look forward, just as they did. The salvation that was accomplished by Christ's resurrection and the incorruptible seed that was planted in our hearts will be revealed in all its fullness when Christ comes the second time in glory. To quote Clowney again, Our hope is anchored in the past. Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present. Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future. Jesus is coming. I'll read that again. Our hope 
is anchored in the past, Jesus rose. Our hope remains in the present, Jesus lives. Our hope is completed in the future, Jesus is coming. And what will this living hope to which we have been born again look like? Verse 4 tells us, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away. Reserved in heaven for you. Your hope as a born again Christian is an inheritance that is being kept, safeguarded, protected in heaven for you. Now Peter likes to take images from Israel's history, from the Old Testament, and apply them to new covenant believers. He does this especially in his first epistle. For example, Paul, P- Peter addresses this letter to the elect exiles, which recalls Israel's exile. In chapter 2, Peter says that we are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special people, and that we offer spiritual sacrifices to God. The language of inheritance also echoes Israel's history. God gave the land of Canaan to Israel as an inheritance. That's the word the Old Testament uses, inheritance. As they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, they were sustained by God's promise of an inheritance, a land flowing with milk and honey. Like Israel in the wilderness, new covenant believers, as Hebrews 11 says, are strangers and exiles on earth. Hebrews eleven thirteen. We make our way through a world that is hostile, that is foreign to us, and sometimes increasingly so. And yet we're not wandering beggars with no home. We hold the deed to our promised heavenly inheritance. We have the title. To capture the certainty, to capture the greatness of our future inheritance, Peter uses Old Testament words and concepts that are related to the land of Israel and to God's judgment on the whole world. So follow me here as we look at how Peter uses language that echoes the the Old Testament prophets. So first, Peter says our inheritance is incorruptible. Some translations might say something like indestructible. It can never perish. It's unable to be destroyed. The land of Israel, on the other hand, was at times ravaged by raiding armies, invading empires. Israel's old covenant inheritance was not indestructible. Neither is this world, this heavens and earth, indestructible. Isaiah 24 foretells the the future, the, the utter destruction of heaven and earth on the last day. Isaiah 24, 3 and 4 say this, The earth will be utterly empty and utterly plundered. For the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world languishes and withers. The heavens languish with the earth. In the Greek translation 
of that passage of Isaiah 24, the word translated plundered and withers, same word, is the same word stem that Peter uses here in 1 Peter 1, 4. Except the word Peter uses means unplundered, unplunderable, unwitherable. So he uses an antonym but uses the same stem. He just puts a prefix on the beginning of it that makes it not. Unlike the present heavens and earth, unlike Israel's land of promise, the land of Canaan, Israel's inheritance, your heavenly inheritance is imperishable, indestructible. The new heavens and the new earth, which is, which is what Peter is talking about here, this great salvation, this inheritance, is the new heavens and new earth, and it will be unwitherable, unplunderable, unable to be destroyed or taken away from you. If your Bibles are still open to 1 Peter 1, flip over a few pages to the end of 2 Peter, the second epistle of Peter, the third chapter. 2 Peter 3, and we're going to look at verses 10 to 13. Peter's hope is not in this creation, but in the new creation that Jesus will establish at His second coming on that day of the Lord. 2 Peter 3 starting in verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which, in which righteousness Dwells. And so Peter here is using that language that Bobby read from Isaiah 65, where Isaiah prophesies about the new heavens and the new earth that God will create. So it's not that he's getting rid of the old because he's throwing it away and it's, it's, he's done with it. This burning is a transformation. The new heavens and new earth will be this new earth, this new heaven, just as our new bodies will be these new bodies transformed, recognizable in some way, having continuity, but something brand new. And in this new heavens and new earth, righteousness will dwell. Isaiah envisions that too. So Peter's using Isaiah's language very intentionally here. Our hope doesn't lie in the present world. Israel's hope, if you read Hebrews 11... The, the hope of the Old Testament believers wasn't in the land of Canaan. And it's not even in this old creation. Even though God is working and renewing in it. Saving more and more people as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians. 
But as strangers and exiles on this earth, we look forward ultimately to the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells forever, incorruptible. Second, Peter says our inheritance is undefiled. It's not polluted. It, it can never spoil. It can never be spoiled. No one can spoil it. Peter is still tracking with Isaiah 24. Picking up where he left off, the next verse, Isaiah 24, verse 5, explains why God will one day destroy the whole world. It says, The earth is defiled by its people. They have disobeyed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant, which is a reference back to the Noahic covenant for all the earth. And this, this, pat, this section of Isaiah is sometimes called the little apocalypse. Chapters 24 to 27. And Isaiah is looking forward long, a long way to that day of judgment when the earth will be judged because it has defiled itself. We have defiled ourselves and all of creation, disobeying the laws violating God's statutes, breaking His covenant. In Jeremiah, God says something similar about the promised land. In particular, Jeremiah 2.7 says, I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land and made my inheritance detestable. So that inheritance, Israel made detestable. The new inheritance will not be able to be made detestable. In the Greek translation of Jeremiah 2.7 that I just read, the word translated defiled is once again the same word stem that Peter uses, except, again, the word Peter uses means undefiled. But it's a prefix at the, begin, at the beginning. Unlike the present heavens and earth, and unlike the, the promised land of Canaan and the old covenant, your heavenly inheritance is undefiled. The new heavens and new earth will be unpollutable. No one will be able to spoil the new transformed earth the way humanity has spoiled this earth. So this world is fallen and defiled. Our hearts are corrupt and deceitful, stained with the indelible ink of pride, self-glory, vain glory. Even those who have received the new birth often succumb to the old patterns of sin lingering in us. So it's hard for us to imagine a world completely undefiled by sin. A world with no keys because there are no locks, because there are no thieves, because there is no sin. A world where every person is honorable, upright, righteous, holy. A world with no military, no law enforcement, no prisons, no evil, no tears, no death. Speaking of such a world... 
Peter says the world to come will be stainless and without blemish. It's, it's unlike anything you've ever experienced. But it's everything that you long for as a human being. Third, Peter says that our inheritance is unfading. It's not subject to decay. It's, it, it'll never diminish in glory. The, the glory will never fade at all. It'll be just as bright after 10 trillion years. As we get older, our youthful physiques flee away like the morning dew. The human body fades. And many of us are noticing that that process of decay speeds up with age. Skin that was once taut is no longer taut. Gravity begins to take over. The downward trajectory of our bodies toward the earth from which they came becomes more noticeable every year. Our inward self is being renewed day by day, Paul says. But our outward self is wasting away. It's fading fast. By contrast, the inheritance that we're headed for. The inheritance that is ours at the end is, is one that does not fade away. It can never decay or diminish. And neither will our future bodies. On that final day when Jesus returns, He'll give us new bodies that are also incorruptible, undefiled, that will never fade away. They won't be like these bodies that are under the curse This is the inheritance that waits all who are united to Christ through faith. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. He says here that the the inheritance is being kept in heaven for us, even as we are being kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation for that inheritance ready to be revealed at the last time. So not only is our inheritance kept for us, we also are being kept for the inheritance. And it's God's work on each side. The same resurrection power of God that keeps, our, that keeps your and my inheritance safe also keeps you and me safe until that day. The cloud and fire that led Israel through the wilderness also leads you to that eternal city, that celestial city. It's a firewall of protection around you. It's God's doing because salvation is of the Lord and your Savior is God alone. The word ready in verse 5 suggests that as, as far as we're concerned, there need be no delay. And we can even echo Peter here and try to hasten the day 
by righteous living, he says. The salvation to be revealed in the last time when Jesus returns is, is ready now. Jesus accomplished everything. It is finished. Here's Clowney one more time. Our inheritance will be revealed at the last day, but God has it ready for us now. It is finished. Nothing need be added to God's preparation. The salvation that God has got ready does not need a few final touches from us. Nor are we called to serve as consultants in designing God's plan. God's salvation, finished, perfect, and unchangeable, is kept for us by God Himself. Unlike our utopian dreams or the fantasies of science fiction, God's plan for the future is already a reality. As pilgrims, we travel to the city of God, but we know that the city to come is the city that comes to us with Jesus Christ. End quote. Peter says in verse 5 that we're kept through faith, by means of faith. God's power doesn't keep us against our will. You know, we're not kicking and screaming against God's will on this journey to the end. As we considered on Good Friday, the death of Christ paid for the sin of your unbelief and it purchased your belief. It paid for the sin of your no faith and it purchased your faith. The reason you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Philippians 2.12, is that, Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you to will and to work for His good pleasure. God not only works for you, He also works in you. The faith through which God's power keeps you is itself itself a gift from God to you. In these three jam-packed verses, Peter tells you where you must look and what you must do. First, you must be God-centered by rising up every day to bless the God and Father of your Lord, Jesus Christ. This God-centeredness, this God-centered praise should begin your every day and be central to your every day just as it began Peter's epistle and was central to Peter's life after the resurrection of Jesus. Second, you must be born again. You must be begotten again of the Father. Third, you must look back. You must look back to the anchor of your living hope, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Fourth, you must look forward to the hope of your inheritance. You must look forward in hope to your future inheritance, which 
will be revealed to you on the last day, and which will never be destroyed, never be defiled, and never decay. In the last time, as Peter says, or on the last day, as he also says, the day of the Lord, Jesus will return to earth and the great salvation that he secured for you in his death and resurrection will be revealed to you in all of its fullness, in all of its glory. That's your hope. Never lose sight of that future event, that future reality, which is already, it's, it's there, it's waiting for us. What you experience when you die and go to heaven is not quite the fullness of what, I'm, of, of what, of what Peter's talking about here. That's the intermediate stage. That's the holding pattern. What we really look forward to is when Jesus returns and makes everything, heaven and earth, completely new. That's your hope, Christian. Don't lose sight of it. Fifth, and finally, you must remember that the path to this inheritance, the the road to the end of this journey, the way to the end of this living hope, is through faith, by faith. And it's by faith in the resurrection of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we bless you, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for begetting us again into a living hope through the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. The inheritance that you've planned, prepared for us, that is ready and waiting for us, it amazes us. But help us to be even more astonished. It fills our hearts with joyful longing. But give us more of that faith-filled longing. We long to be with you in heaven, but even more, we, lo- we long to be with you in the new heavens and new earth that will be revealed to us when Jesus returns. Help us now, even before we receive the fullness of our salvation, help us to live lives that are undefiled. We put all of our faith and all of our hope in you, in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Amen.